Welcome back, everyone, to Defenders Dialogue with Car and Adam. This is episode 22, and I'm calling it Egghead Over Easy. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm Adam Phillips, president of UntoldStoriesMarketing.com, and with me is... Car D'Angelo, owner of Earth 2 Comics in Sherman Oaks and Northridge, California. Thank you. I suppose we could have called this the changing of the guard or something like that, but you know, I didn't already call one changing of the guard. <laughs> no, I don't think so. No. Okay. We're going to be talking about defenders 42 and 43 today. And I just finished editing the episode about the Marvel treasury edition of Howard the duck. And I have some very small notes. And I mean, when I say small, these are real small, just clarifications. So unless you have something to add um, at this point, I'll get started with those. Okay. 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 So this is really a dumb point, but I just want to say it because did you know that there was a villain who was in both the Sinister Six and the Emissaries of Evil? The Daredevil Emissaries of Evil? Oh. Um, oh, Electro. Yeah, Electro. You got it. How ridiculous. I know. So Electro was sort of stealing the Sinister Six idea and said, I'm going to do the Emissaries of Evil. Gonna do only, I think it was only five of them. Right? I, don't, yes. I don't think there were six. You're right. Now we're going to take on someone a little easier to fight. I mean, he's blind. Come on. Yeah. Uh-huh. Then I mentioned we were talking about Celebrity Magazine, and I realized I started researching. I don't think they ever actually published it. I think they talked about it like in bullpen pages, and it, I think it ended up being published as Pizzazz. I was going to say something about Pizzazz because I was trying to figure out if they were related. And Pizzazz wound up being kind of younger-oriented. It did, but um, I have a thought about that too. You're right, but they definitely had celebrities on a lot of their covers, if not all of them. And people were chasing that market at that time. And the reason I say that is that before I started working at DC Comics, I worked for a company called Welsh Publishing Group, and they got started with Muppet Magazine. That was their publication. And Muppet Magazine was formed because the publisher, the founder of Welsh Publishing, Don Welsh, saw his, like, 12-year-old daughter reading People Magazine and lamenting that there wasn't a People Magazine for kids. There wasn't a People Magazine for Muppets. And then, Yeah, right. So, like, clearly people were, you know, companies were chasing that audience and thinking kids would go for something like that. Well, this leads to, indirectly, the what was going on at DC, which was Jeanette Kahn. Uh -huh. But Jeanette Kahn came from, what magazine was that? It was very much like Pizzazz. Uh, Dynamite? Dynamite. Yes, Jeanette was the publisher, I guess, at Dynamite magazine before coming to DC. And yeah, you know, that's always, I mean, there's lots of, magazines for kids like that but i think you know the the celebrity driven magazines for kids oh i know what i'm gonna say about pizzazz pizzazz also includes a whole bunch of star wars comics material that's never been collected as far as i can tell wow. they did like two pages or four pages a month for the 20 issues or whatever and it's, i don't think it's ever been collected so who knows okay next thing on my agenda here the New York Jets played at Shea Stadium for 20 seasons. So, yes, football was played at Shea Stadium. 
Makes sense. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought I'd just check. Apparently, they stopped playing there only because the Nets were overcharging them like crazy. Interesting. And that led to the Meadowlands. <laughs> yes. Then, we were both wrong about this, but it's not very important. The cover to Captain America 230, the one with the Hulk smashing his fist into Cap's shield, is by drawn by Ron Wilson and inked by Bob Layton. So we Bob Layton. Okay, I think I thought Joe Rubenstein. Yeah, I know. I, they, yeah. Bob Layton is there. There are moments when they have similar oh sure to them. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 All right, and then my last note: Howard the Duck number two. I just want to shout, give a shout out to Terry. Who wrote us a very nice note saying it was great how we could recognize all those <laughs> inkers just by you know just by looking uh, at the art. Not always. I can't picture it adequately enough in my head to know who it is all the right. time. <laughs> okay, Howard the Duck number two. There is a dream sequence in which he becomes Buck Rogers, basically. Right, it's kind of a Frazetta like. Yeah. Yes. Look. It ain't Kill Raven, and it ain't real the way him becoming Shang-Chi or Conan or Doctor Strange was real in the story. Right. And then I, I continued my my dive down the rabbit hole on the TRS-80 computer whiz kids, but I don't think we really need to discuss that. <laughs> oh, let, let's let, let's save that for your third podcast. <laughs> However, I, I now I feel like I must collect all these. And there are some you're saying that don't have like crossovers like the ones that were published by archie don't necessarily have archie characters in them they were just published by archie correct i did discover however there is one that's a crossover that's called archie and the history of electronics in which it's the riverdale gang plus those kids who after they started being published by archie changed their name i didn't notice this till the other day they changed their name after the first issue from the TRS-80 Computer Whiz Kids to the Tandy Computer Whiz Kids, which I don't know. Really, TRS-80 Computer Whiz Kids is so much better. Well, I imagine that was the company branding. I feel like Tandy oh, yeah. was to, to be so, cons- you know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being pedantic, but, you know, is, is to be, you know, obviously it was consumer friendly. Yeah, it was their brand. TRS-80 is just like... It sounded good in the boardroom. We're doing the TRS-80. Yeah, right. But Tandy was the brand that was on all their electronics. Right. I think that's an upset about the TRS-80 <laughs> computer whiz kids. So uh, now we'll move on to Defenders number 42. This issue has a December cover date, and it was uh, published on September 21st, 1976. So, uh, yeah, a whole new ball game here, you know, right from the get-go, because this is not your typical Gil Kane or maybe Rich Buckler cover. It's by this new guy, Jack Kirby. <laughs> well, Kirby just came back to Marvel at this point, and they stuck him on a lot of covers. It was an interesting way to start out. I guess it was a good way to sort of funnel him work and get his brand out there obviously they were seeing value in in rebranding as you know rebranding marvel as the kirby company yeah there's that i'll also um say so i may have mentioned i think i mentioned before that i was reading captain america omnibus volume three which is the steve Englehart run 
and they finished that and they thought, oh, what the heck, I'm just going to continue because I've got the next omnibus, which is, it just says Captain America and Jack Kirby. I don't know what the name of the thing is, but it, you know, picks up directly after the last Frank Robbins issue that's, I guess, written by Marv Wolfman, but it's the, you know, the very end of what follows the Engelhart stuff and anyway, leads right into Kirby. And after a few issues, you start to realize, like, he's spending a lot of time with Captain America. He's got the Bicentennial Battles and an annual. And from the letters page, you kind of get a hint that he's got other projects in the works, but he hasn't launched them yet. So I think they were looking for stuff to keep him busy. Right. So, yeah, a lot of covers. And this cover, we've got the Defenders sort of on the left side of the cover, the rhino is smashing headfirst into the Hulk, who's trying to pound at the at the rhino with his uh, one his right fist. And then on the right side of the cover, we've got Solar, if you remember him, who's melting the ground so that Power Man's feet is getting stuck with, in it. And Valkyrie is kind of coming toward him with her sword raised, and Doctor Strange is flying toward him from the back. And uh, there's a couple of odd buildings there. I mean, this story takes place in a city. These buildings look like farm buildings. I think the building that Doctor Strange is, is in front of is supposed to be his his building because it's got those kind of funky windows. Oh, um, yeah, that's true. It doesn't have the classic Will Eisner design window, but it, uh, it does have, um... But you're right. The cover's inked by Klaus Janssen, but the Hulk face looks like it's been retouched by Ramita. No. Shock. Shocking, I know. And uh, yeah, it's got a kind of a cool burst with a caption coming out of it. And the burst says, Rhino, Solar, Egghead. And then the caption says, the deadly new emissaries of evil. Oh, they're deadly. In more ways than one. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And then this issue is written by Jerry. It's written and edited, excuse me, by Jerry Conway with art by Keith Giffen and Klaus Janssen, and it's colored by Klaus Janssen. And this is issue, what, 42? So this is the first time since issue 30 that we've had an issue of the Defenders not drawn by Sal Buscema. And even before then, I don't think he missed a single issue from the No, and that was a, and that was clearly a fill-in. He's, he's, it's, you know, mentioned in the letters page, he's gone as, you know, um, he's no longer the regular artist. Yeah. That's, you know, Look, there's some great, real interesting art in these issues, as we said before. So, you know, we'll see how... Who how did you say inked the cover? I'm sorry. Jansen. Oh, it is Jansen. On, okay, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. So the story is called, And in this corner, the new emissaries of evil. Evil! <laughs> emissaries! Emissaries! Isn't it? That's one of those vocabulary words. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's true. So we open in Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum, and in the center of the splash page, Nighthawk is being blasted by a beam that's coming down from through a window, it seems like, and it's engulfing him in, like, Kirby Dot flames. Yes. And he's sort of writhing around. Hulk is to his one side, Doctor Strange is to his other side, pulling his cape around him. Valkyrie and Luke Cage are in the foreground, kind of looking on in shock. And he suddenly, inexplicably, bursts into flame, a caption says. There's a lot of captions in the next few pages that explain who these characters are. 
anyway, so uh, we've turned the page to a double page spread of a lot of little panels. Valkyrie is running toward Nighthawk to help him, and he's screaming, help me, help me. And she says, she's gonna, she's gonna. Uh, She kind of picks him up out of the flames, but it doesn't seem to be helping him. Hulk and uh, Power Man are realizing, like, the rake is coming from outside. Hulk says, okay, so let's go outside. Hulk smashes through the wall of Doctor Strange's place with Luke Cage in tow. So they end up outside. Valkyrie says, hey, Nighthawk's in a lot of pain, but he doesn't seem to be any, he doesn't seem to be hurt for, you know, no burn marks or anything. And Doctor Strange says, okay, you keep an eye on him. I'm going to go outside. He goes outside too. And the next panel here where he kind of, he he gets outside and uh, sees Solar, but there's a like a tall, narrow panel. And this is one of a couple of places in this issue where I thought the art on Doctor Strange looked like the Barry Smith art from Marvel premiere number, whatever it is. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of places he sees and Hulk and Luke Cage also see Solar who looks like he's about a hundred feet tall and sort of abstracted in kind of like with, like he's made of Kirby dots, you know? Right. And they're trying to figure out what's going on with this guy because, you know, he, he is strange looking anyway. Solar says, you better provide me with what I want immediately unless you want to get killed like the other guys. And Hulk is ready to attack, but Luke Cage is holding him back for just a moment. And then the next page, Solar says that he wants the Star of Capistan. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to kill all you guys. Hulk and Luke Cage attack, but Solar melts the street so Luke Cage can't move. And Hulk's still moving toward him and saying, you know, you can't do that to my friends. I'm going to get you. And then a voice comes from behind the Hulk saying, you're about as smart as a donkey's armpit. You and your pals are finished. and You don't even know it. And it's the rhino who smashes, comes running up and smashes into the Hulk's back. The Hulk goes flying and, you know, knocks over a, a fire hydrant. So now he's soaking wet. He doesn't like that either. And the Rhino seems to be working with Solar, and he says, you know, hand over that jewel or get ready to die. And Doctor Strange now says he's attacking Solar, but Doctor Strange says, we don't know what the Star of Capistan is. Will you guys stop it? Doctor Strange's blasts sort of go right through Solar, and this is the other panel, that little inset panel of the close-up of Doctor Strange that I thought looked like a Barry Smith face. Anyway, he's he's shocked that Solar is just brushing off his attacks and he starts to say it's almost as if you weren't and then Solar blasts him with some heat heat power to stop him from saying you know what we what is obvious which is that he's some kind of an illusion and we know um yeah you know Keith Giffen all due respect has been known to uh seek influence yeah that's true and, you know, it is there early in his career. He's trying some cool stuff. Like on the next page. Oh, yeah, you know, it's great. It is. It's really, man, a lot of energy. The next page, it's mostly the Hulk, Luke Cage, and Rhino fighting. But, there's, you know, it starts with this really cool panel of a, an overhead, bird's eye view shot of the Hulk still sort of standing in the spray of the fire hydrant. 
as the rhino is running directly at him. And, you know, it's like you're looking right down on top of them. Yeah. And there's a great sequence where the Hulk hits the rhino. He goes flying. Luke Cage catches him by the horn on top of his head and then smashes him head down into the pavement. It's like, this is great. <laughs> if you have a horn, you don't want to run into the defenders. You know, they will use your horn against you in a fight. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. Leave your horn. That's Shandu. Right. Or, you know, change your name to the hippo and uh, your costume. <laughs> <laughs> so then Hulk decides he's going to help Doctor Strange by using that fire hydrant, you know, that's gushing water to soak him uh, so he, like, gets, you know, relieved of the heat from Solar. Doctor Strange is freed from Solar's sort of power hold over him. And somehow at this point, he now sees that, oh, the giant form of Solar was an illusion. Formed by heat, he says. It's an ability I've developed since my combat with Captain America. Captain America with number 160. And that's kind of cheesy. There's a lot of that with Solar. I mean, <laughs> well, it's a, but it's also like if you have to develop, if you have to say the character came up with a new power since they last showed up, use a different character. Yeah, th that's a theme throughout this story, kind of, especially yeah. Solar. So Solar rides like a, a wave of flame into Doctor Strange's place through the place where Hulk smashed out of the building. And then he sees inside Valkyrie standing over Nighthawk, and he's starting. She's starting to pull her sword out of its scabbard, and she says, "Are you going to surrender, or do we have to fight?" And he's like, "Surrender? Pfft, I don't think so." So they start fighting, and you know, he he mentions something about the jewel, and then he realizes, like, these guys don't know what the Star of Capistan is. I guess there's no point in this fight. So he goes blasting back out of Doctor Strange's place. And Valkyrie's going to follow him, but then Nighthawk kind of groans, and she says, nope, can't leave him. Got to stay here. So outside, Solar says to Rhino that the boss was wrong. They don't have the jewel. And Rhino says, well, what are we fighting for? Let's get out of here. He, he says, I joined this Emissaries of Evil group for one thing, money. Not to play patty cake with a cape magician and his sweaty sidekicks. So um, the two of them start moving away from the defenders and then they get transported out of the scene completely. I wish I had more exciting things to say, but I mean, this is, this is such an action packed issue. It's action packed to the point right. of, so what? <laughs> no, I'm with you. There's, there's like almost no, no personal anything, you know, it gets a little it more evolves a bit, but yeah, it's just kind of in this kind of um, limbo. Yeah. So, Rhino and Solar materialize on this space station where they see a mysterious figure in the shadows and he's the boss and they're they're telling him, hey, it was your fault. You know, they didn't have the jewel. Come on. What are you doing, idiot? And it turns out the boss is Egghead. Bum, bum, bum. Ugh. <laughs> So Egghead somehow is not only in, you know, he's got this space station. He needs the Star of Kapistan. He's conv convinced that Doctor Strange has it. And the, if they're going to accuse him of being wrong, well, that's one thing he can't tolerate. You're going to be punished. So they he puts them in the time stasis tube for 10 hours. That'll teach you a lesson. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he basically he gives them corner time. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. That's a timeout. Yeah, I mean, and, and Egghead's being used as a quote, quote unquote classic defenders villain because he of the you know ties with you know Kyle Richmond and you know last seen in Giant Size Defenders Four, and right. he even you know calls himself the Man Men Call Egghead. I guess to say he doesn't really call himself Egghead. People call me Egghead, but <laughs> I was immediately thrown off by the idea of you know a scientific brainiac type of villain going. Now, where can I find a good old mystical gem to give me some power? Well, yeah, sure. And uh, look, I was thrown off by the fact that the last time we saw him, he was down and out in uh, Skid Row on the Lower East Side of Manhattan with no money and, you know, not even a change of clothes. Now he's wearing like a superhero costume and operating out of a space station that, you know, he he says on the next page here, you know, it was nothing to break out of jail and then steal the space station from NASA. It's like, what? Right. Um, and then find two supervillains who he thought would be perfect for his uses to get the star of Capistan. Oh, and also he cured Solar of the fact that he only really had power during the day. So now he his power's been up, so he has power whenever he needs it, not just during the daytime. If only he could help Nighthawk in the office yeah. of <laughs> So Nighthawk could throw a punch during the day. That has not come up in a really long time. People don't. Yeah, that gets kind of like, oh, let's not talk about that anymore. No, because it's just too silly. Egghead says, the quest for the most fabulous treasure since the days of King Solomon's mine. And I actually kind of thought it was funny here at the bottom of the page where Egghead is explaining Solar's origin. And then there's a caption that says, incredible but true, see Captain America 160. Because Solar's origin is basically, I was out in the desert too long and I got superpowers. (laughs) I know. It's so dumb. It's not even like the sand wasn't radioactive or something to, you know, can we bring in some traditional secret origin convention as opposed to, I I didn't just bronze, I became solar powered. Right. It's so goofy. Then on the next page, he's explaining how the star of Kapistan is actually a sacred object to a secret Pakistani religious cult, and it's the largest ruby on the face of the planet. or On this or any other planet. So he knows what rubies there are on all the planets. And the leader of the cult is Omar Karindu, who is a um, a friend of Stephen Strange's. So somehow, this means Doctor Strange must have it. Not Omar Karindu, Doctor Strange. Because they, they explain how, well, it was in Bangladesh, and then it got moved during a war, and then it went to London, and then it was in moved to New York and it's got to be there and that'll make that'll give him the, a way to make his most forceful weapon ever if he gets that jewel back to NYU Medical Center where Dr. Strange, Luke Cage and Valkyrie are tending to Nighthawk there's a lot of thought balloons in this next panel I liked it <laughs> there were there you know Dr. Strange is wondering where's Red Guardian is something going on with her Luke Cage says to Nighthawk, man, you're one lucky dude because, you know, you didn't actually get burned. And, you know, they explain how well it wasn't really, wasn't real fire, just an illusion. And then a humble stereotype appears. <laughs> well, wait a second. Work. I want to say about, well, first of all, we got Nighthawk. Not only is he at the doctor, he's at the doctor shirtless, but with his mask on, which is always that yes. funny, you know, I mean, seriously. This is a guy who has gotten so much medical work done on him while in costume. 
That's true. Again, just I, I love connecting dots like that. That I know. I mean, yeah. I'm sure they were not necessarily thinking of all of that when they did this issue. No. But when they talk about the that it was uh, the fire was an illusion, you know, Nighthawk says, "Sure didn't feel that way to me. In fact, I you know dot dot dot. Huh? Who's that? Now to right. me in in comic book uh, language." You know, somebody starting to say something and gets interrupted is usually like, oh, that's going to lead to something. I don't know that ah. this one was, <laughs> but but because I don't think it, it comes back that no, it had any kind of other effect on him. But I think it's to me, it reads like, I mean, as an adult rather than a kid reading this, it reads like the writer felt like it would be more naturalistic for him to just keep talking, but he didn't really have anything for him to say. So he just stopped it two words in. You say, hey, huh, who's that right? He wanted to interrupt, yeah. he wanted to interrupt a sentence. So just start yeah. with, in fact, when there really was nothing to follow it up with. Yeah, right. Um, anyway, so a humble stereotype enters. <laughs> he says he's bringing word from a friend who would remember the day of the darkness in the city of New Delhi. And, oh, of course, Omar Carindo, you mean, Dr. Strange says. And the personage gives him a note from Omar Karindu, and Dr. Shane says, I gotta go. You stay here, Valkyrie. Oh, I forgot to mention, Valkyrie's back in her traditional costume for some reason. Yes. I think Keith Giffen just didn't get the memo. Or it's, well, it, again, comes up in the letters pages. These letters pages in these four issues, because I'm reading the originals, all chock full of stuff. Oh, okay, okay. Anyway, so Str Dr. Shane takes off and leaves Valkyrie in charge, basically. And then we turn to a Sixth Avenue hotel frequented by foreign diplomats and international businessmen where Dr. Strange is meeting Omar Karindu, who is sort of hinting that he's awaiting his, you know, that he's maybe dying soon. He's on his way to his next phase of his journey to Nirvana. Uh, but that's pretty, <laughs> it's sort of between the lines anyway. But apparently he came up before. This guy is not new. He came, he was Seen before in Strange Tales number 136. Right. Well, it says between, yeah, I don't know what they mean by between the lines. I'm looking at a synopsis of Doctor Strange 136, and it says he visits many mystics. So yeah. it's possible he they're just trying to suggest that this is one of the many worldly mystics that Doctor Strange knows, but I don't know if he's actually name-checked in that issue or not. Sure. No, I just meant when the guy says, I await the next phase of my journey to oh, yeah, yeah. it sounds like, oh, so you're going to die soon? You know, yes. like I could be misreading this. No, I anyway. think I think I think you're you're correct. That's how I read it. Yeah. And Doctor Strange says this is so this is about the cult of the unliving four? And yes, it is, apparently. Do the unliving four know the undying <laughs> ones? I wish. Man, do I wish. <laughs> that would have been great, but no. So this guy reveals to Stephen that he has the star of Kapistan but that it has great power and it's out of our control. And Dr. Strange is sort of staring at it. And like something from a old issue of Conan or whatever, there's like panels of him, you know, it, the camera's getting closer and closer to Dr. Strange and closer and closer to this gem. And he's sort of getting mesmerized by it. You know, the, at the end of that little run of panels, Conan would normally bring his sword down on it and destroy it. Right. But that doesn't happen here. So as not to be tempted, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and again, and it's you know, there's a lot of cinematic design in Keith Giffen's art. 
Yeah. He's trying different things. He's coming a little bit from the school of, you know, Jim Starlin, you know, where the uh-huh. page is kind of designed. It's not as, you know, I mean, you know, Sal Buscema for the most part is a, you know, six panels a page, you know, maybe with some variation kind of guy. And, you know, we see, you know, Giffen playing with the format of the page, which is what more some of the newer artists are doing at Marvel at this point, you know, right. influenced by Steranko and Barry Smith and, you know, Jim Starlin. Yeah, for sure. And it looks great. And look, I mean, Jansen is inking and coloring and it looks sharp as anything. I mean, I loved his uh, Giffen's work, especially in the early days when he was doing fill-in issues on Kill Raven and stuff like that, you know, it's always really good. So then we cut to outside the hospital where the Hulk is sitting on a park bench waiting for the other defenders to come back and he's wearing a coat and a hat. So that that tradition at least still persists. Right. The ground starts shaking and like an earthquake and big blue hands emerge from the ground right in front of the Hulk. And then on the next page, it's a splash page. It's the Cobalt Man who has emerged from the ground. And Hulk remembers him because they fought in Hulk 174 not that long before. I guess this is about two years after that issue. So Hulk, Hulk actually remembers this guy. And the the Cobalt Man is like, you know, he's got sort of an Iron Man costume and he's like blasting radiation looking rays from his eyes. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it looks like a tough customer. Um, and they start fighting. But then we come back to the space station where we learn, like, in just a straight up flashback, how. Egghead found the Cobalt Man floating in space. His name was Ralph Roberts, by the way. And, you know, he, he Egghead, like, brought him back to life, basically. Right. And gave him a mission. Kill the Defenders. All right, I will. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Luke Cage and Valkyrie look outside and see that the Hulk's fighting this guy. And and so does Nighthawk. Now Nighthawk's wearing no shirt, but his wings and his jetpack, as well as his mask and everything. Yeah. So he put on the the, the cape, but, <laughs> but, he, but he left off the shirt. <laughs> it's a good look. Or was the shirt burned off? Is he literally without a tunic because it it? it... Well, it can't actually have been burned off because the flame. That's a great pollution. point. But maybe they cut it off him because maybe they cut it off him at the hospital to get at his supposedly injured injured torso. organs, yeah. And then it turned out to be nothing. And oh, great! You ruined my shirt. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> I'm gonna have to get a new shirt. Yeah. So he goes flying out, out the hospital window, smacks the cobalt man with his bare hand, and says, "Ow, that hurts." <laughs> yeah, the guy's wearing armor. You ding dong. Oh well. Nobody ever accused Einhawk of being the brightest hero. Until next issue. Yeah. <laughs> right. So then we're at the end of this issue, and Egghead's watching from his space station as the, uh, the Defenders all fight the Cobalt Man. And the Cobalt Man, you know, they, they all smash him. The Cobalt Man falls to the ground, but he starts glowing and, you know, really powering up like he's going to explode and Luke Cage gets the last word and he says Christmas and I thought I had problems on 42nd Street 
I, I, I'm begging for fewer comments from Luke Cage about how this is just like Times Square or whatever. Right. I mean, he seems like he does that a lot. Next issue, The Red Guardian Returns, plus the startling climax of our mini-epic, quote, This world is mine, unquote. Be there, Effendi. Effendi. Yeah. So, can we talk about this first Jerry Conway issue? Please. Yes. Here's my series of observations. Action-packed. Action's action-packed. Jerry Conway is a very nice human being. I've met Jerry. He's, he's, He's terrific. For whatever reason, though, as a writer, and I think because I came in, my first issue of Amazing Spider-Man was 149, which was his last issue. So I think I was not reading sort of what his best work, the highlights of his career might have been, which I think are his Spider-Man run and things at that time. And Uh so when I got to know see Jerry Conway as a writer, he was a guy who was bouncing back and forth all over the place. Because he left Marvel for DC and he started, again, one of my favorite series. Hey, I'm Mr. Earth 2, right? So he created Power Girl and brought back the Justice Society as the All-Star Squadron at DC right before this. It was the same year. It was earlier in 1976 that All-Star Comics 58 came out. And and he was involved in reviving. I think he he was an editor there and a writer there and he was doing Freedom Fighters. I mean, he brought a lot of energy and, and oh, and Secret Society of Supervillains. So he brought all these great ideas to DC. And then I think I felt a little betrayed because, again, packed his bags up and left and back to Marvel. Right. And where he then, you know, and again, we talked about, you know, the introduction about Steve Gerber last time. And the, 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 the rumors are the, and the stories are, that Jerry Conway came coming back as editor in chief, I believe was the title kind of said, I'd like to, I mean, he'd already done Spider-Man. He had already done fantastic four. He'd already done Thor. I think he even did. Um, he actually co-wrote, I looked up uh, Hulk 174. He co-wrote that with his friend, Roy Thomas. Yeah. Uh, you know, Roy and Jerry would go off to write screenplays together. Um, Jerry yeah. Conway became a big TV writer. So Jerry Conway doesn't really care if I like his comics or not. He doesn't need to. <laughs> but, you know, it was it was seen as, while there were certainly lateness problems and other problems in the Marvel bullpen, there are also concerns that it was like, hey, I'm the editor. I need some big books to write. I don't want to do the ones I've already done. So I'm going to I'm going to handpick Avengers and defenders which i you know did those marvel team-ups of and that was kind of fun but i don't know what he i mean i don't know if he really said that part but um but that you know that the way to sort of solve the lateness problems with the steves and to Uh you know get the get what apparently were somewhat successful books under better editorial control or Uh or stricter editorial control was to 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 assign them to himself uh, yeah, it seems like that. I mean, look, he's only on Defenders for a couple of issues. I'm not sure how long. Well, well that's the other Avengers. strange thing, too. But And so in this letters page, in issue 42, Jerry Conway writes a greeting. And it's, it's, it's interesting because he, he has a very interesting ask of the Marvel audience. And he, and he basically says, I know, I know you all love Steve Gerber. Some of you love Steve Gerber. And here I am, you know, basically. And he says, um, but I'm not going to attempt to imitate Steve's style to emulate his storyline or character sense because a Steve style is peculiar, peculiarly his own. It's a hard right. word to say right. and inimitable. Yeah. I have my own style <laughs> and I couldn't fool you anyway. 
So I'm going to ask you for a favor. I'm going to ask you to pretend you're picking up the defenders for the first time with this issue, fresh and unprejudiced by previous interpretations. And I'm going to ask you to enjoy what you read, as I know you will, since, as I said, I'm a Marvel reader myself and know what I like. And then he, you know, says he's going to be doing, you know, things differently, blah, blah, blah. But uh-huh. I think that's a good try and reset the expectation because he knows he's bringing a completely different tone. But even taking up that challenge, I did feel this was a kind of mundane superhero story that didn't really bring anything new at all. Yeah, and that's right. more disappointing in the Defenders than if you're reading Champions, you know? Sure. Or some, or some other kind of thrown together team book. Yeah. Yeah. This is like the most straightforward superhero storytelling that we've seen in the Defenders, certainly since about issue 15. But, you know, Len Wein's run on the book had like that great enthusiastic quality that Len's writing had where, you know, everything was just fun and exciting. And this, this, this feels a, a lot more by the numbers kind of. Like, yeah, it's hard to find the fun in it. I mean, you you yeah. you know, and and again, and even with comparing it to Len's stuff, and they're you know they um, were fast friends, so you know you know and kind of you know from the same school of comic book writing. Yeah. But you know, Len intru- you know did he introduce did Len create Nebulon? I mean, but brought Nebulon yes. into it, brought Nighthawk into it, just bringing a new character like that and giving him so much personality the twist with the whole Magneto story of make them babies. I mean, there was, that was even the beginning of some of that defenders weirdness where something really, unex, you know, the, the superhero yeah. story resolves itself in an unexpected way. We're going to turn Magneto and his cronies into babies. Right. You know? and Len's, in Len's run, I always loved the, you know, Hulk suddenly realizes that these people could be his friends vibe, you know, and he's very friendly to everybody. Right. It's great. It's, Anyway, so you don't get a lot of that here. It's no. like uh, for a team that only comes together seemingly when they when there's a threat, it doesn't feel like this. You know, at this point, there's much reason for them to be hanging around if you're going to ignore Valkyrie's quest for her identity and and Nighthawk's, you know, attempts to uh, become more a more serious person. Right. Yeah. The, the the character beats just aren't really touched at all. No. But there's another letter on the page. That happens to be also from a guy from a guy named Mark Ernst, who I used to uh, fanzines and stuff with. Oh, okay. So I mean, I mean, I think I I, I think we're Facebook cool. friends now, but he's a uh, a longtime fan. Um, I think. Who else? Uh, who else do we have letters from? That's it. There's oh, that's a third it. Of, a third of it is Jerry Conway's sort of mea culpa, and then uh, the a very long letter from Mark, where he just kind of gives an overview of all the characters. So again, one of the things that kind of goes on in the next few letter pages, they kind of avoid talking about the Gerber storylines gotcha. specifically, and just kind of talk about defenders in general. Yeah. And then, and there's also though the um, like, and the other third of the letter column is the uh, pitch for Howard the Duck. Can't you know? Um, and you can get that button. Yeah, they're selling the buttons. They're uh, they're doing campaign updates. So. Defenders is still seen as a, a, I don't know if those were in all the Marvel books, letter columns, but, you know, being doing the big push for um, Howard's candidacy. Should we go on to the next issue? Let's do that. Okay. Because this is the big conclusion. 
Uh, Defenders 43, January cover date, on sale October 19th, 1976. And uh, this issue has a cover, once again, drawn by Jack Kirby, inked by Al Milgram. It's signed. It's a weird, it's a slightly weird cover for a couple of reasons. One of which is that the background is like, there's a sort of an explosion going on in the background, and it's like red and pink. So it's bizarre coloring. Yes. And then also, so basically what's happening is, I don't know. I mean, Kirby was working off sketches from like usually Marie Severin, but this is just an odd one because the Hulk is in the center. Obviously the Hulk's the money character in this bunch, but the Hulk's in dead center kind of reaching out and running toward the reader. And behind him is the cobalt man who he's, the Hulk is pushing back with his left hand and like the Hobo man is sort of glowing with energy and falling back. And then around the cobalt man are Nighthawk, Valkyrie and Luke Cage. And they're all sort of caught in the, energy that's pulsing off a cobalt man and then there's a little inset of dr strange like he's not really there it's like a reversal of the time we had the hulk in the little inset going and you'll never guess what the hulk is up to. <laughs> yes and then there's a caption that says who boy doc strange disappears the cobalt man explodes egghead goes wild and then another caption a burst that says face it pilgrim this is the big one which is Cliché number four in the Marvel handbook. And there's a, a, a general feeling that, that when I see a cover like this, I go, one person says, well, the Hulk's our money, as you said. Let's yeah. make sure the Hulk is really prominent. And then uh, someone sees the cover and goes, but where's Doctor Strange? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, if you told me that that inset was completely drawn by Al Milgram, I would not be at all surprised. No, I agree. I think, you know, I think yeah, that's that's how how I kind of how I kind of feel. Because I mean, Milgram does a, a pretty good imitation of well, yeah, it's almost or, too Kirby with the hands, you know, and everything. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, no, I'm saying right. look, that's what makes it look like Milgram is it looks more like that combination of Ditko and and Kirby. Yeah, yeah. So this issue is written by and edited by Jerry Conway. Oh, the writer editor's days are numbered, Carr. You know that, right? Yes. Yes. And artists are Keith Giffen and Klaus Janssen. Jansen is uh, coloring again this issue, which always is great. The story's called This World is Mine. I don't know who's saying it, but oh, I guess it's Egghead. <laughs> and it's, um, and, you know, and as you pointed out, that you know, it's the mind boggling conclusion or whatever. It also felt that they were trying to sell the idea after Steve Gerber's 11 part epic, like, Okay, we're actually going to start a story and wrap it up in the next issue. So trust us. Uh, yeah, definitely. They're really pushing the idea of it being a Marvel action epic. So we start out with the view from the space station where Egghead is sitting in kind of a command chair and Solar and Rhino are standing on either side of him. And they're looking on a view screen at the scene where the Cobalt Man is on the ground, just like at the end of the last issue, glowing, and he's like melting a car with his body just because he's on top of it. And uh, the Defenders are sort of standing around him looking like, uh, what do we do? What do we do next? <laughs> right. And Egghead saying the Defenders are as good as dead. Nothing's going to come between him and the Star of Kapistan. This world is mine. And Solar, <laughs> Solar and Rhino are probably thinking, dude, I'm right here. You don't have to yell. 
So the next page, the defenders, now we're back on Earth, and the defenders are kind of going, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? And this is like in the middle of New York City, so there's a crowd, of course, and there's a guy running up going, my car! I just paid 5,000 smackers for that baby. And uh, Luke Cage is going like, are you blind? This guy's about to explode. Forget your car, get out of here. And Hulk's like saying, you know, I'm going to just smash up this this blue guy because uh, that's the best option, I'm sure. And Luke Cage is trying to stop him because, of course, if you start smashing the Cobalt Man as he's building up to critical mass, you know, it could be a bad idea. He might go boom. He might go boom. So then Nighthawk's sort of flying around trying to figure out what to do, too, and he realizes, like, hey, I got an idea. And he convinces the Hulk not to smash the Cobalt Man but to do the, what he says, and Hulk says, all right, I'll do it. And then the next page, it's fast because there's not much happening on these pages. The Hulk is carrying Cobalt Man away, and Nighthawk is sort of directing him to bring him to the river. And there's sort of an inset panel of all those people who were watching the scene going, where are the police? Why aren't they here? And one guy, a guy says, this is New York, fella. They're probably getting mugged. When I see a, when I see a panel like this... Uh huh. I always think are the well one of them in the background looks like J. Jonah Jameson. It does for no good reason. And the others, I always wonder, you know, right. like the classic Dave Cockrum, Rockefeller Plaza, you know, panel in X Men. It's like they're, they're, the close ups are so kind of defined. I'm like, are these friends of Keith or you know, are these Marvel staffers? You know, they're because there's a couple of them just have certain distinctions that they look like a real person as opposed to a comic book person. But, they do look distinctive, but they don't look like anybody I could point a yeah. finger at, you know? Except for J. Jonah Jameson, I mean. But J. Jonah Jameson is there, yeah. Right. Anyway, um, Nighthawk says, okay, there's the river, drop him! And he's sort of explaining to Hulk, who doesn't really need it to be explained to him, that atomic piles are built underwater because the water slows down the neutrons, but, you know, it's just like exposition 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 but this is what i was saying you said last issue nighthawk isn't the smartest guy in the bunch and suddenly as yeah. i was reading this i was going when did nighthawk become a, a nuclear physicist well that is funny but but i mean i was kind of kidding when i said that first of all and also i mean he's not the brightest but he's not really dumb or anything but Nuclear power plants were really in the news in the mid-late 70s. So, you know, uh, passing knowledge of using water to cool nuclear reactors makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about nuclear power plants and how they worked generally in the news. And so I I can forgive him this even if the speech that he gives the Hulk is kind of over the top and unnecessary. But when did Sinus Syndrome come out? Oh, like oh, that was years later. That was 1979. Okay, well, that's not that many years later. This is 76, you know? Well, no, but I'm saying, no, I, I was sort of thinking like, you know, oh, what did, what yes, did you know, what did, we've all seen China Syndrome. I don't think I really knew. I mean, I was only 13 or whatever, but I, I don't think I was really knew much about nuclear power plants until the China Syndrome or until, or until, or whenever Three Mile Island was, maybe I guess that was, bef- that would have been years before China. No, didn't that happen at like the same time? Wasn't that the weird part of it? Anyway, this has nothing to do with Defenders, so we're going to move on. Okay, so the Hulk is in the river and looking annoyed, but... um, He's wet. He's all wet. He doesn't like being wet, apparently. And then we see that the Cobalt Man is floating down to the bottom of the river, and 
then Egghead is, you know, shaking his fists and cursing about the Hulk having foiled his plans. Apparently he doesn't notice that Nighthawk had anything to do with it. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, there's a deliberate attempt to sort of keep, I mean, and eventually they there's mentions, but yeah, there's this weird attempt to keep Nighthawk sort of in the dark about Egghead and vice versa. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. So Egghead says he's going to send uh, Solar and Rhino off again to uh, fight these guys and get the, you know, and force Doctor Strange to reveal the location of the jewel, which is like, we just tried that. Why should we help? And you just had us in that stasis thing and we didn't like it. So why should we help you? And Egghead says, you know, that he, hey, I'm the boss around here and what I say goes. So he he zaps them with that tra- a transporter beam that sends them back to Earth. Meanwhile, on Earth, in the shadow of a bridge, which one, I don't know. Um, the Hulk is carrying Cobalt Man back out of the water. And the defenders, including the Red Guardian, are showing up. And uh, Nighthawk says, I was wondering what happened to you, Tanya. And Tanya Polinsky says, well, I, I had to pop into the Soviet embassy. And now that I'm here, I see you've won. I have a feeling that they just forgot to put her in the last issue because this is such a lame <laughs> excuse. It's not like she's the most dynamic character and add, you know, add, she doesn't add a ton to the team, but I thought, I thought she was related to the red Raja. Oh, that would have been good, but I suspect not. Yes, but it did feel that way. It felt like I'm not going to include, you know, we're not going to use her. And then it was like, no, you can't, you got to write her out. I mean, although what she talks about going to the embassy leads to the possibility of it kind of opens the possibility of they can write her out. They can keep, you know, it's, it's yeah. something can happen either way. It's an excuse. It's just not a very good one. Yeah. <laughs> so Nightwing is explaining to her that Cobalt man was attacking us, but we don't think it was of his own free will. You're a doctor. You got, you saved me once. Can you save him? I'm like, you just need a transplant. <laughs> you know, not all doctors are the same. Oh, well. Yeah. Solar and Rhino now materialize in a the lobby of a Midtown hotel, which is probably the hotel where Dr. Strange is visiting with his friends. So they head upstairs, or they, they try to go up in an elevator. They're, like, pulling open the elevator doors, and a, a figure comes out. And this is, like, the first new thing we've seen in these two issues, you know, since the new team has taken over. There's this character dressed in red and orange with, like, hip-high boots and, like, a really interesting collar on his top and and big gloves and a turban and, like, a, a cape that sort of starts on one shoulder and flows around the other shoulder and wraps around again. It's a pretty cool design. Yeah, Middle Eastern... Desert inspired, you know. Yeah, and it's something we would late recognize years later as completely a you know Keith Giffen type design. Yeah, definitely. It's which is great. Um, Solar immediately says, "You must be here to steal the car- Star of Capistan." It starts blasting at him, and this character who he we, oh who he's about to say his name is the Red Raja says. Dare you speak to me of right, you who are a thief and an untouchable? Well, okay. Uh, that's a broad definition of untouchable, but all right. 
I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah, and again, now it's trying to put it like squarely in kind of like Indian. Indian, culture. yeah, exactly. When the, the top of the page before we meet the Red Raja, the yeah. caption as the elevator explodes is, sorry, Rhino, you just hit the jackpot. Oh. <laughs> and, I, and I thought like, wow, that is like, again, one of the least impressive you know, right? callbacks to what's such a great moment in Spider-Man history of Peter meeting Mary Jane. It's like, you've hit the jackpot because you met the Red Raja? I mean... <laughs> yeah. It would have been better if, if, you know, Mary Jane Watson came out of that elevator. That would have been funny. That would have been perfect. <laughs> Has she ever been a super anything? Um. Oh, well, she, she jackpot. She became jackpot oh, a few right. years ago. I forgot. I forgot. Yes, of course. And also in the JJ, yeah. and isn't she also, I think, a, or she, I can't remember. She, there's also some future version where yeah. the whole Spider family has powers or something. Renew your vows oh, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Look at you. I sell comics for a living. You sell comics for a living. And I worked for decades at DC where I did not have time to read pretty much anything but DC comics, really. It was hard to ever find time to read stuff that wasn't DC. Of course, no. And to me, it's just knowing the broad strokes because those are the things sure, you're yeah. looking for. You know, it's more the intricacies that I, I don't know. Um, but I can kind of go, yeah, for three years, Doc Ock was Spider-Man. That was cool. <laughs> that was cool. I did read some of that and I liked it. It was awesome. That was, yeah, that was really good. Yes. Dan Slott is a pretty terrific writer. <laughs> Rhino and Solar are fighting back and forth with, with Red Raja until he start Raja until he starts growing so that he's big enough to fight the rhino because he could just increase his size apparently. And the rhino runs at him. He jumps up and comes down right onto the rhino, smashing him through the floor into the basement of this hotel. And, you know, he says, this is the fate of all those who seek the sacred star. Not quite those words for I am the star's strength as I am its protector. I am the red Raja. <laughs> and this next panel is kind of funny where we cut to Egghead on his satellite and he's sort of, uh, you know, angry at what's going on. And, oh, wait, he actually says, he's saying like, oh, by now, Rhino and Solar must have located the jewel. They're going to seize it. I'll be, everything's going to be great. Cobalt Man's going to accomplish what I asked him to. But if not, I'll have to do it myself. With a little help from my friends. And he's got like an egg in his hand. Ooh, what right. could that mean? What could that possibly be? Right. A weapon egg. <laughs> I've weaponized eggs by leaving them in the closet for a month. <laughs> uh, then we, we cut back to Dr. Strange's place where they've hooked up this crazy contraption so that Red Guardian can access Cobalt Man's mind. So we're going to start this whole segment of the book where we're getting flashbacks to what he's been through while other stuff is happening. It's really odd. But man, this page is gorgeous. That that center thing with the eyes is really beautiful where it's an extreme close-up on Clea's eyes and she's explaining how she has learned all these techniques from Doctor Strange. Yeah. And she, Clea, sort of gives the machine the power it will need to meld the minds of Red Guardian and Cobalt Man. I'm not sure why Red Guardian was the best choice for this. I know she's a doctor and everything, but I don't get it. Next page, 
the Hulk is worrying about Doctor Strange, who's been gone for a long time. <laughs> and he's just sort of sitting in a corner, or maybe he's walking, I guess, somewhere, when Egghead materializes in right behind him. And he's thinking, wow, it's the first victim of my nigh-overwhelming genius. And this guy's the... jeez. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like a wily e. coyote, super genius, and then egghead for, you know, hubris. <laughs> Eggs by Acme? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Where do you think I'd get them? So anyway, egghead throws one of these little eggs at the Hulk. It hits him in the back, explodes, and envelops the Hulk in like a big billowing blanket or not blanket, but like sheet, but sort of like a net. Can't get out of it. Hulk can't fight back. Too soft. Too much. Uh-huh. Well, it's like, didn't the leader have like those human... There was some... Yeah. Somebody had some sort of oh, robot or humanoids or something that was leader. him with like... They were like... The yeah, they were like big, gushy guys. Yeah, and it was always like he couldn't really fight back because there was like nothing... He could hit them, but they they just kind of didn't, you know... There was no resistance, so yeah. there was no way for him to win, really. Right. So then we see the flashback to the Cobalt Man's past beginning where we find out that, you know, he was an admirer of Iron Man and wanted to make his own armor, but the radiation from the armor twisted his mind and drove him insane in X-Men 31 for some reason. That's why you pick an inert metal like iron to, to, to make your armor <laughs> out of. Yes, Try not to lean into the radioactive isotopes, kids. You know who's really nutty? Uranium, man. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Actually, that's what I was thinking, was that, like, the Hulk carrying the Cobalt Man a few, you know, scenes ago, it's like, wouldn't that radiation have had some effect on the Hulk? Maybe it could have changed him somehow, but they didn't bother dealing with that. There are a lot of stories where that does happen, where the yeah. Hulk is fighting somebody that's radioactive or in the presence of something radioactive. And therefore it yeah, turns him back into, you know, Bruce Banner has some other effect. Or I think I'm thinking at the same time, was it, it was the great team up between Ben Grimm between the thing and the Hulk and the Roy Thomas, George Perez, fantastic four, uh -huh. where at the end of the story, because the thing never had that much exposure to gamma radiation, because they right. went on this like cross-country trip, him and the Hulk. Yes. He, he's absorbed so much gamma radiation that it neutralizes the cosmic radiation, and he turns into Ben Grimm at the end. Right, and that's the beginning of that run where he has to wear a thing costume. Right. But then, what? in order to meet their charter, because, you know, superhero teams have charters that the government <laughs> mandates very much. Yeah. To, they had to have four super naturally superpowered members, and the exo, exoskeleton didn't count. So while he was part of the fan, he wasn't an official member of the Fantastic Four. So they had right. to hire someone with superpowers, and who did they hire? Yeah, Luke Cage. There you go. It all comes I, around. Right. I remember it so well. That's great stuff. <laughs> so Egghead is wandering away down the hall from the Hulk, who's trapped in that big bed sheet. And talking to himself about how I tricked you and beat you, haha, ha, I'm great. <laughs> when Valkyrie comes up behind him and says, you know, you know, okay, you you beat the Hulk, but you won't beat me, buddy. And uh, she says, and, and and Egghead says, I think I will beat you 
take this. And he throws an egg at her and she slices it open with her sword. But it is um, full of electricity and it, it, you know, knocks her unconscious from the shock. And then we see a panel of the Cobalt Man, how he fought um, the X-Men. It's not really that interesting. <laughs> wait, no, is that no, he already fought the X-Men. No, are we on the one where he fights? Oh, wait, oh, no, yeah, no, no. the X-Men, you're right. Okay. Yes. La- yeah, in the previous panel, we just got the footnote right. that said it you takes place in the X-Men. Egghead continues wandering, and now he finds... Oh, well, he's going to walk upstairs. Meanwhile, we see that Luke Cage and Nighthawk are having a chat, and Luke Cage is like, I don't know why I want... Well, I don't want to stick around with this team anymore. You got, you all are cramping my style, sort of. It's just, you know, too much craziness. And then we see how the Cobalt Man once fought the Hulk, and... He became a human atom bomb. But there were two different cobalt mans, it says. Oh, yes. So 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 is is does it, so so he remembers so the first memories of the origin of the cobalt man are Ralph Roberts, the current cobalt man, remembering the, the memories guy. of the original cobalt man. <laughs> That's true. Yes, I forgot about that, but you're right. Anyway, then Luke Cage is still kind of going like, you know, y'all are great, but I'm not sure I wanna continue with this team get it nighthawk you hear what i'm saying nighthawk nighthawk and he turns around and sees that egghead has used one of his eggs to like lash nighthawk up in steel bands or something because so and nighthawk but nighthawk's awake so he says it's this is the creep who hurt trish star and power man says yeah I, i know all about you baldy and i don't like you and the egghead throws an egg at him, but it just bounces off his chest and doesn't do anything, seemingly. And right. Egghead says, well, ha, how? So he was prepared for all the other defenders, but not Luke Cage. <laughs> okay, fine. Well, I guess it had, maybe it has to... Well, no, because it wouldn't break the Hulk skin either. I mean, if he, yeah, if he could, if, if it could work on the Hulk, why couldn't it work on, on Luke Cage? No, it doesn't. Well, it doesn't seem to do anything. It's like there's no effect. Yeah, we don't. You know, it's like a dud. <laughs> this is an actual egg. Oh no! Um, it does give us the opportunity to see Luke Cage use a great line where Egghead says, "I never guessed you were so powerful," and Luke says, "Tough on you, punk." <laughs> That's like a third grade insult or whatever. Not insult, but <laughs> response. <laughs> And then we see how um, the Cobalt Man was fighting the Hulk in space, and there was an explosion, and he was, you know, he, he lost all consciousness, and that's the last thing he remembers. And then Luke Cage is, you know, fighting Egghead sort of hand to hand, and this this Ooh. is where, yeah, th- this is where Keith Giffen's drawing style shortcomings become a little more obvious because even though there's a lot of fun storytelling concepts and things like that, these top three panels of Egghead and Luke Cage fighting are, the figures are not particularly well drawn. Yeah. You know? they're, 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 he's in this plot period. That's what a lot of people sort of, that his, yeah. his, his characters only always seem kind of like those dolls they make now, you know, like uh-huh. the, the semi deformed, they always look kind of like top heavy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Luke, punches Egghead out. Meanwhile, we got a quick panel of the contact between Red Guardian and Cobalt Man is breaking apart. 
because probably, you know, and like the energy is building up again. Uh, Egghead and Luke Cage keep fighting. The bond between Red Guardian and Cobalt Man is now broken completely, and they're okay. They're both okay, even though it looked like they were going to explode in the last panel. And they're talking about how he was under some, you know, somebody's control, but who's? When Egghead comes crashing through the door, and Cobalt Man says, It's him! Egghead. And grabs Egghead. I can't change what you did, Cobalt Man says, but I can make certain you'll never do it again. And Red Guardian st- tries to stop him, but Cobalt Man and Egghead disappear in what is described by Red Guardian as a contained nuclear implosion, destroying them both, but leaving us unharmed. And Luke Cage says, that's it? The party's over? And this is such a weird ending. Red Guardian says, today a brave man died for freedom. And as a communist, that is something I must consider and pray I may someday understand. I'm, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I did not think she was a fan of communism, you know? Well, you know, that she gets the, that comes up, well, comes up again later. And again, I think it's just wrestling with trying to give her some point of view because you've been kind of handed this character that you didn't cre- create. Maybe there was a better backstory there. Certainly Gerber had sort of certain socio-political thing in mind, but now it's simply, you know, red equals communism equals, I don't know what else to say about her. Yeah, I know. And to be fair, in the previous issues, she mostly said, I love Russia, not I hate communism. Exactly. So, next, a startling new defender, plus the Red Raja, Red Raja's Revenge. I keep wanting to say Raja, but I think it's Raja's more... I always said Raja, but I mean, I don't know. No, I think I'm just saying it because I you know, have a little more association with Spanish pronunciation than India. Oh, I, yes. Well, you know, here's my Los Angeles story. When the first time I came to Los Angeles, <laughs> a I was meeting a friend for lunch, a, a writer for Starlog named Lee Goldberg. I'll give him credit because he never let me forget it. And when I got to his office to meet, and we were the few other Starlog writers, and he said, "Well, how, oh, how'd you get here?" I go, "I go, oh, it was pretty easy. I just down, I just came down La Chianega." Ah, <laughs> sure. And I, yes. and I guess I was sort of bringing my Italian pronunciation to it. That's great. Oh, sure. And because I, I didn't know, I didn't know how to pronounce everything um, oh. the, the southwestern way. Yeah, yeah, we we had to learn a lot of those things since we moved here. That's fantastic. Well, first of all, I think I kind of feel a little cheated because it was the whole epic supposed to come to an end. Egghead's gone, but the Red Raja, Red Raja, Red Raja. I know I'm saying it. The Red Raja is still out there, so the epic really isn't over. Okay, that's fair. That's a subplot. Uh, so maybe it's more than a mini-emic. And, and a couple notes from the Defenders Dialogue letters page. First of all, is there an answer? Why are the Marvel letter pages in the middle of the story? I don't know. Was that just about keeping the, the balance of the two-page spreads? Maybe. I don't know. But it's like, yeah, it always maybe. annoyed me because when I get to the letters page, I'd want to stop and read the letters page, but I also want to keep reading the story. I know. I always liked it best when the um, letters pages were at the end of the issue, but I don't know why. So... There's some, there's a credit that John Byrne came up with the the new design of Valkyrie's costume. Yeah. You can't, you know, maybe you can kind of see, and I guess there's an, a drawing that's that's his drawing of it, and it, it, you know, it, it sells it. Um, I mean, I'm oh, curious cool. to think, like, wow, he was coming, he had been on Champions. I mean, I wonder if there was a chance he was going to come on Defenders. That would have been cool. 
that could have changed history. That would have been cool. Yeah, man, I loved when Byrne showed up at Marvel and started drawing, you know, Iron Fist and Champion suddenly looked pretty good for a few issues. <laughs> the elf is brought up again on this letters page a couple times. And it was also on the last page that one of the, Jerry Conway did make the promise that the, that he, he was going to resolve it, the elf subplot. And it gets brought up again here, and it says, well, we can't tell you what we're going to do, but we're definitely resolving it. Uh-huh. You know, where does it, yeah, it's, you know, the elf subplot has been one of the most controversial in the history of the Defenders. Fan mail has been split almost down the middle. And then they introduce a letter where basically somebody kind of just sums up all the elf activity to date and basically between 15 issues between issues 25 and 40 it's four uh-huh. appearances so it's every what three to four issues uh-huh. and we haven't seen the elf since issue 40 so it's kind of which was the yeah. where where the elf almost crossed paths with the hulk because they were in the same small town i think in in the in, in the southwest somewhere it was in right. new mexico or someplace like that uh-huh. Or Oklahoma, was it? Can't remember. Uh can't remember. But they, they keep talking about it and they keep promising to take care of it. Yeah. Well, and that Jerry's got it all figured out. Oh good. Well, he's only on two more issues where he is like a plotter of the stories, but not much else. In this issue we just read, they really undersold the Doctor Strange's missing part of the story. Yeah, that's why it feels like the cover is a fix. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Hulk kind of goes, you know, has a moment of going, right. where is Magician? But it's really just a moment. Nobody else brings it up. He's not even facing the camera when he says it. <laughs> That's right. And also, I mean, I, I was looking at that panel and go, those panels and going, is he sitting in a corner? Is he walking down a hall? Where is he going and why? Well, because everyone's got that kind of hunched, like yeah. squatty kind of, you know, look. The interesting thing about that fight that you were talking about with Luke Cage and, and the Rhino, it does end, though, with a Sal Buscema homage panel, which is <laughs> Luke Cage punching, and just you see the legs of the, you know, the, the yeah. um, or not the Rhino, Egghead. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's Luke Cage versus Egghead, and you just see Egghead via his legs exiting the top of the panel, which yes. is the classic, you know, Sal Buscema throwing the villain over, over the top of the panel. <laughs> Right, 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 right. All right. Well, I don't know that we have anything else to add here. Do you have anything else to add? Nope. I do not either. Well, then, I guess we're done for this episode. But until next time, Defenders Dissemble. Hey, everybody. It's Adam here with a quick note. This episode that you're listening to right now will post on November 18th, Thursday, So the following Thursday is Thanksgiving, and we will have no new episode that day. We're going to take a skip week, and then we'll be back um, the following week, which is the first Thursday of December. See you then. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please subscribe. Leave us a review. Please leave us a review. We're dying out here. (laughs) And uh, we'll see you all next time. Ding and real, swing and shield, bling and superhero. They're the latest, they're the greatest, ultimate superheroes, the Marvel superheroes.